following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. executive got a phone call from the headquarters and said that she needed to be over in another city to represent the company in a meeting. She was more than happy to do that, but she realized, of course, thinking through it, she'd have to really make an expeditious journey. So she ran down to her car, jumped in, started it up, took off, got on the freeway, took a shortcut as she thought through it through the desert to get to the next neighboring town. She saw that if she took this shortcut with little traffic, she could probably blast over there and make it to the meeting on time and and she roared down this two-lane road and headed over a hill. It was too late when she actually saw the California Highway Patrol sitting over to the side. She roared past that officer, looking in her rearview mirror and realizing that he turned on his lights and roared off onto the highway after her, speeding as fast as he could. So she did the best thing that a person could in that situation, and she sped up. And uh, she... Uh, she stomped on her accelerator. She saw ahead what she thought could be maybe her best out. And she slammed on her brakes and roared into a gas station up to the, up to the uh, restrooms, jumped out of her car and ran into the women's restroom. And she waited a, an appropriate amount of time, and she walked out after that time that she thought was appropriate and looked at the officer and smiled and said, I bet you didn't think I'd make it. <laughs> Well, there are moments in life when we have these critical changes, and it's like a climax moment in life, and it changes the whole story. And we, we, we are realizing that as people change those stories, they, they have a hard time sometimes always telling it like it is, or from whatever perspective they can tell it, will determine whether or not it's true or whether it's false. Now, Brian Williams is having a little bit of a challenge. He's a news anchor for NBC, and he's uh, told this story for about a dozen years, and the story keeps morphing, and as he tells the story, he was in the helicopter, and they're in the, the uh, Iraq War, Iran War, whichever one of those wars it was, and he was in the helicopter, and he got hit by an RPG. They had to crash land, and as they uh, exited the helicopter, they were protected by U.S. military ground forces. And so they honored this guy at one of the big NBA games out in the East Coast, and as he told the story again about how he was in this helicopter and got shot down and protected by this man, everyone applauded the, the soldier. And then one of the, the guys who actually flew that helicopter wrote back and said, hey, you know, I was a pilot on that helicopter, and that's not quite how I remembered it. <laughs> so sometimes the truth gets muddled with how we want to remember something or how the lack of clarity somehow changes that story. But there are always these climax moments in life that somehow determine where we're going to be heading. This last weekend, there was a climax moment that has probably clouded the airways for a bazillion different channels and media coverage and the lives of a lot of fans. So there was a climax point, and everyone's trying to figure out really what was the truth behind this particular call. But when I saw it, I'm not a real big, I've never played football. I like watching football, but when I saw it, it wasn't the call that amazed me. It was the interception. So I, I, I don't know what in the world you do with all that stuff and you engage all these people with conversations and, and some things that are really fun but really don't make all that much of a difference. But really where the truth lies is far more important. So when I think about climax moments, 
I was messing around with the computer this week and just asking the computer, where were the climax moments of this country that really make a difference? And not in a Super Bowl. Certainly not in a particular play that determines the ending of how the Super Bowl ends. But in this great nation that we love, where, where are the climax points? If I read a list of 25 and I thought to myself, I'm going to reduce this down to what I think are the top 10. And obviously the Declaration of Independence was critical. The Civil War was absolutely a climax point for the United States for all the things that still somehow have some of the undercurrents about where loyalties lie. The end of a life of a remarkable leader when Lincoln was assassinated and the awful sense of this nation entering into the First World War where lives were scarred forever and nations were formed and dissolved because of this climax. There's also a moment here in the United States in 1929 when the stock market crashed and the lives of people were totally turned around because they put all of their stock and what they could hold in their hands and spend at the next door. Great climax point when World War II ended. And the Vietnam War was a part of my life as I watched it with wonderful friends who had to go overseas and fight a war that was absolutely ugly and unending. And maybe one of the great moments when I was out of the country studying in a foreign land when this particular moment occurred and the Berlin Wall came down and freedom suddenly rings in such a way that everyone, no matter what language they speak and what country they are from, that became a climax point for what I think is one of the great leaders and presidents of the United States history. Climax points don't just happen in history and don't just happen in football games and don't just happen because we're being chased by a police officer, but they happen because we live a life that's going to make a difference in the lives of other people if we could sort out what we believe is true and set aside the things that keep us from believing that that truth is how our lives should be lived. This week, you're going to be engaging a lot of your colleagues and people that you know, and there's always going to be a chance and a choice when we will stand by the truth because we confess this is what we believe, or we'll hinge from that particular truth, backpedal a little bit, soft sell the story of what we believe, maybe mutter under our breath, maybe hide from what we think is true because it might be offensive to somebody else. But if the truth dries our life, conviction will determine the kind of life that we will live. And I think that that's one of the stories and themes that pervades the story that we're going to be looking at today in Mark chapter 8, the climax point in the Gospel of Mark. When we look at this amazing Gospel presentation of the life of Jesus Christ, Mark presents the life of Jesus Christ in such a way that we could say that Jesus is an amazing servant as he tries to live out the truth that he wants us to believe in. And it starts off with this very special miracle called the healing of the blind man, and it's pretty special because in the healing of the blind man in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, it's one of those rather unique stories that occurs only in the gospel of Mark. So here in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, this is what the scripture said. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village where he had spit in the, uh, led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put in his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I can't see through the spittle. 
They look like trees walking around, dripping with morning dew. You guys aren't reading your Bibles, I guess. Just trusting me to read it the right way. Wow, I didn't know the Bible said that. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't go into the village. This is a pretty special story because it only occurs in the Gospel of Mark. And because it only occurs in the Gospel of Mark, we suddenly pay attention. Was it because it wasn't that significant of a miracle? Or was Jesus Christ presented by Mark in a unique way for us to pick up this very special emphasis? This is the only two-stage miracle that I think I can find in the entire Bible. First two-stage miracle, the only time two-stage miracle happened. Doesn't it bother you when you read the miracle? You're thinking, well, Jesus Christ spit on this guy. It says, what do you see? You, you expect him to see clearly. But he said, I, I can only see kind of things vaguely. It's like Jesus Christ didn't do the right job the first time, and he had to continue the process. Now, that captures my attention. So I'm asking myself, why in the world is this particular miracle <coughs> like this? So Christ presents something. This guy is only partially healed. And yet he's on his way, and then Jesus Christ finishes up with the second part, part of the miracle. Man, that captures my attention. His sight, from, from, from the standpoint of looking at the Scriptures, whenever you talk about seeing or sight, it's almost always a metaphor for understanding. If you take that particular idea and throw it into the mix with our curiosity here about this particular miracle, huh, I'm starting to get a little suspicious. If the vision that we have physically represents our understanding of spiritual truth. What in the world is going on with this two-stage miracle? And as Jesus Christ takes this man away from the crowd, only allows his disciples to be the audience. Maybe Christ is trying to demonstrate to his disciples a special lesson that he wants them to pay attention to. There's a representation here, the portrait of maybe the disciples in their own faith, being incomplete. When I look at the life of Jesus Christ in this historical period, when Jesus Christ is roaming around in, in, in Israel, going through his ministry, I see this historical moment as Jesus Christ teaching his disciples how to live by faith. And for some reason, they're having a tough time with it. Remember just before this in the context, the feeding of the 5,000, they watched Jesus Christ do it. They are part of the process of picking up all of, the, all of the leftovers, and they do not stand there amazed at what Jesus did. Christ immediately takes them away, gets them away from the people that might be infected by their lack of belief, throws them into a boat and says, go to the other side while I say goodbye to the crowds. Jesus Christ teaches them a lesson on the boat when they are on the storm, in the storm, and they don't even recognize who Jesus is. In the process, their faith is supposed to be growing, but it seems to be stumbling all along the way. Christ has to walk out there, and hopefully there may be a vision of him while they're in their trouble will give them encouragement that they're not going to die. But instead, these who have been with Jesus, they think he's a ghost. He has to actually get into the boat, which he was not planning on doing, in order to let them see him closer so their faith can be restored. He takes them to the Gentile region, the feeding of the 4,000, makes it easier with fewer people but with more resources so that they could see that the, the grace of God can be ministered to any people 
no matter who they're dealing with, not just Jews, but also Gentiles. But the disciples couldn't pick up on the expression of their faith, and they waited three days while Jesus Christ taught these people, and no wonder they grew hungry. Jesus is the one who has to bring it to their attention. It's like the disciples are getting the privilege of being with Jesus, growing their faith in all these different contexts, they didn't see the expanse of Jesus Christ's power, and they aren't picking up the lessons. Jesus Christ has to try to teach them, you guys need to look in a mirror. And so what he does is he picks up on this opportunity of a blind man that's brought to him. And he heals this man by, by spitting, asking the man, now can you see? He says, I can only see partially. Can you imagine what the disciples are thinking? Christ takes this blind man away from the crowds. Like, it doesn't matter what the popular opinion is. It's who you have a relationship with. And if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, amazing things can happen if you put faith into action. But when faith was placed into action, this blind man only saw partially. It's almost as if the disciples are saying, man, that's just like us. Christ is giving us all of this, and we can only put our faith into action when he slaps us up the side of the head because we aren't getting it. The good news, guys, is that the disciples weren't getting it, but they are a lot closer than they were before they met Jesus. And so Jesus Christ finishes the miracle and allows these disciples to see themselves in the miracle of this blind man being healed the second time. A partial miracle is like the 12 in their partial growth of faith. This leads us up to the context, as a context, of one of the great moments in the life of Jesus Christ, and certainly the climax of the book of Mark. The book of Mark climaxes itself at this historical place. This is uh, called Caesarea Philippi. It's uh, about 25 miles north of of the Sea of Galilee. It's an amazing place when you walk on these grounds. Beautiful spring that springs up. It's it's the uh, headwaters for the Jordan River. And at this particular location, Jesus Christ brings his disciples. And he says, who do people say that I am? In the process of that, the disciples report to him, I will be happy to tell you what people are saying. In the first half of the Gospel of Mark, There's this amazing presentation where Jesus Christ is trying to present himself as Messiah, the truth. Will the disciples believe? Will their faith allow them to embrace and confess what they know is true? At this particular location, at this particular moment, Peter gets a chance to represent all of the 12. And it's at this climax that everything changes. First half of the book of Mark, presentation of Jesus as the Messiah. Second half of the book of Mark is this particular presentation of a new program that's part of God's mystery that the disciples have the privilege of hearing. Caesarea Philippi, an amazing location. If you get a chance to visit Israel, you've got to go here, sit on a rock sometime and say, this is when Peter's faith, representing all of the faith for all of the disciples, finally comes to a head. And they confess the truth. He doesn't muddle it. He doesn't try to cover it up. But he just speaks it clearly, speaks it truly. 
one of the common statements that the people are making and they tell Jesus, people, some people think that you're John the Baptist resurrected. Other people say that you're Elijah resurrected. Some people say you're the prophet, some prophet whose name they don't even know. And perhaps one of the most amazing things about that is those are all pretty good compliments of who people might think they are, who think he is. But they're all wrong. Close, but no cigar. Close to the truth, but not precise enough to be a conviction or a confession of what the truth is. One of my defining moments in my life was uh, when I was a youngster in, in Sunday school, and I said a verse or something, and I won a prize, and I, they called me up to the front of the whole church, and they handed me a prize, and it was a, a, a chocolate bar, but it was shaped like a rabbit. So it was a chocolate rabbit. And I was so proud of that chocolate rabbit, and I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell my brothers or my sister, because I didn't want to share it. So I hid it. And for, for several weeks that I just kept it all of my own until one day I found myself at home by myself and I thought I'm going to enjoy this chocolate rabbit that I won in this contest. And I took it out of the wrapper and I thought, man, I get to eat this whole chocolate rabbit by myself. And I chomped into it and the horror that I discovered that the rabbit was not solid chocolate, but it was hollow. Now, I don't know why. I mean, I wasn't a philosopher at the time. I was just like a 10-year-old kid. But I still remember to this day the massive disappointment when the truth was revealed that this was not nearly as good as I thought it was. So maybe ever since then, I've been a skeptic. And the truth has to demonstrate itself to me before I embrace it. Maybe then my skepticism was born. Well, there are a lot of us who at this day and age are skeptics because of our faith. Suddenly someone comes up to us in the office and we realize that they have a sad affect. They just don't look happy. Hey, Charlie, what's going on? You don't look happy at all. Nah, my wife and I had a big fight. Same fight we've been having for the last 15 years. And she told me this morning, this is it. She's done with me. And for a moment, we're thinking to ourselves, man, this is, this is the opportunity I've been waiting for to share Jesus with him. But we're hesitant because we see other people around. And we might be embarrassed that some people might think I'm a Jesus freak. Because, hey, man, that's really rough news. And we say those words and we can't even believe we're saying it. Man, come on, kick it in, kick it in high gear. You've got the opportunity. Oh, God, this is not a good time. We're starting work. I've got a big assignment. He's got a big assignment. We've got a big meeting we're heading to. I'll get to him later. Charlie, man, I'm pulling for you. So we say all the things that the world tells us to say that sound good but mean nothing. Jesus Christ looks at his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? What's the world saying? Well, you don't want to offend anybody. You certainly don't want to say these phrases about another religion even though their actions suggest to us that maybe we ought to be courageous enough to say, this is right, this is wrong. But for some reason, we have been robbed of our courage that hasn't come common with our confession. And sometime, maybe it's really important for us as men to say, this is what I believe, because I'm a man of God who represents him. 
One of my students is a pastor of a church that's grown from about uh, 800 people to 1,200 people. He called me up yesterday to tell me the great news this past Sunday. He gave an invitation after preaching a very powerful message about courage and standing up for our faith. He says, I, w- I want to give you an opportunity to stand up for Jesus Christ and say, you're going to speak for him. And if you're, if you're in that m- mood today and you believe that God has spoken to you through this message, stand up out of your chair and come on down here and I'll pray for you. 1,200 people in that church, 1,050 people came forward. 1,050 people came forward to say, I'm going to stand up for my faith and confession in Jesus Christ. I don't think that little church in that little town is going to be the same. When people are saying, no, I'm not going to muddle through my faith. I'm not going to go with generalities. I'm not going to look for that opportunity, and when it comes, I'm going to break that opportunity. But instead, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that he is the Messiah. He is the one that God sent to fulfill all of his promises. And on the basis of that truth, I confess it with my mouth to those who hear. That is how I will now live my life. Ready for a climax with amazing truth, and that's exactly what Scripture is talking about. What do, who do you say that I am? And that is exactly what Jesus Christ is leading up to. We've, we've, we've seen the world. We've heard the world. We, we've heard the possibilities of something spiritual is going on here, but it's not really Jesus and who he is by his identity. It's not the fulfillment of God's promises. Instead, Jesus Christ is asking Peter, okay, forget what the world is saying. Forget what you're hearing. Forget about what religious people are flooding the airways with. Who do you say that I am? These are the ones that Jesus Christ has taught and trained. And when you think about all of the religious leaders of the nation of Israel who've now thrown down the gauntlet and says, okay, we've heard what Jesus has said. We've watched his miracles. But quite frankly, we've come to the conclusion that he gets all this power from the devil. We don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. At this juncture in the life of Jesus Christ, that is why this is such a climactic moment. The religious leaders, the seminary people, messed up because they were so embroiled with themselves and what they were teaching. They did not want to believe in Jesus. And the crowd said, hey, we really like this man, and we're not quite sure where he is because we see that the Pharisees are glaring at us. We see that the Sadducees are giving us that look. We see that the lawyers are about ready to serve us with any kind of legal papers if we say the wrong thing. So uh, he's kind of like a prophet. Yeah, he's, he's like John the Baptist. They're afraid. Fear replaces faith every time. When fear is present, faith cannot spring forth. So Jesus says, okay, set aside the religious leadership Set aside the generality of the population view. Who do you say that I am? Peter, speak on behalf of the 12. We've been together for years. Through thick and thin, you've heard me preach. You've watched me perform miracles. Who then do you say that I am? Peter gets it right. Amazing how many times he messed up, but at least this time he got it correct. Seems like circumstances and the whispers of the world get in the way all the time of whether or not we really believe what is true. The Evans family live in Gary, Indiana. It's a very 
very poor part of the country, and the houses are small, and the roads are terrible. All the utilities of the city are awful. The railroad runs right through there with a switching yard uh, part of the city. It's always noisy and dirty. But the Evans family, they loved each other. They loved the Lord. They were grateful for the daughter that God had given them, a little two-year-old toddler that they were madly in love with. Little Mary was just a, a heartbeat of their souls. In Gary, Indiana, during the summer, it's just not a pleasant place to be, so they had all the windows open, all the doors open, trying to get any kind of breeze to give them a relief. They both had a great time at the meal as a family, and then he and she were at the kitchen washing dishes and cleaning up, having great conversation. All of a sudden, the mother says, where's Mary? And suddenly the two of them sensed that only the thing that parents can sense when you go into a paddock, they ran around the house looking for their little daughter, and they could not, she could not be found. They ran back in the kitchen and realized that the screen door to the kitchen to the outside was unlatched and ajar. They ran outside looking all over the place for Mary as they saw a crowd of their neighbors and friends walking up that broken up street, all with sad faces as the one who was leading the group. One of their neighbors was carrying the body of a crumpled up little two-year-old Mary. She had wandered out of the house that was so hot for her, looking for some relief herself, wandered down to the railroad tracks and didn't know where to go when the sound of that massive locomotive came barreling down the tracks. Together as a community, they had a funeral service and they buried little Mary and it was an amazing service but full of tears and heartbreak and wonderment why in the world God would allow something like this to happen. Where was the truth in this? Where was their conviction as followers of Jesus in this? Months later, people still wondered why in the world such tragedy would happen and where was God in such a moment as that? As the Evans quietly sat there and eating their dinner, there was a knock on the door and they were puzzled, but they got up and went to the door to see a stranger who looked like he hadn't eaten in days and unshaven for days. And he looked up with sad eyes and introduced himself. He was the engineer of the train that could not stop in time and ended up taking the life of their daughter. And with tears running down his cheeks, he just begged, begged the Evans family to forgive him. Realizing, of course, it was not his fault, not in the slightest. They invited him in, sat him down at the table and gave him a glass of lemonade and Mary's mother looked at this man who was so deeply troubled and ridden with guilt and asked him, are you a Christian? And the engineer looked up with a puzzlement on his face and said, no. And so Mary looked at her husband and he smiled at her. And together as a couple, they told this man about their undying hope in Jesus Christ that one day they would be reunited with their little daughter Mary in heaven so they could be together forever. And the same Savior, Jesus Christ, could give him eternal life if he would simply put his faith in the Savior. That day, that engineer, once a stranger, brought together through tragedy, through the life of this loved little girl called Mary, accepted Jesus as his personal Savior. When I think about Gary, Indiana, it's just not a nice town. I've driven through it many times, made sure I never stopped. But I've never forgotten that story. And when I was preparing this lesson, I'm thinking to myself, can we who believe in Jesus confess the truth 
in such a way that the words cross our lips, and then we live our lives according to it. We will not shrink back. We will not water down the truth. We will not wander from what is real. Instead, we will represent Jesus Christ well in the lives of the people that we will all touch many times this week that the rest in this group will never see and maybe never meet. We will not hiccup. We will not hesitate to be a great witness for Jesus. Not a flaming evangelist who stands on a soapbox and makes a fool out of ourselves, drawing more attention to our lunacy, but just being a loving representation of Jesus Christ in the lives of those who are our fellow workers. Because when we confess the truth, we will live according to that truth. And the lives of many other people around us will be looking for that rock, which they can find a hope in that they can find nowhere else. Have a great time in your table talk, guys. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.